I'd like to uh, read from our text from Matthew 12, verses 1 to 8. And the title is, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Matthew 12, verses 1 to 8. At that time, Jesus went through the green fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Have you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath day in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shoveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, Will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ralph. <clears throat> so, we are now in our last message on our short series that we've been doing on work. Next week is the start of Advent season, and uh, thanks to my bride's continual pressure, admonition, encouragement, I have learned not just to accept Advent, Advent but to embrace it and to love it. And so since our Sermon uh, on the Mount series went as long as it did, it only gave us four weeks for this series on work because I don't want to start Advent late. Um, and we've been, we've been looking at uh, uh, how, how work fits into our lives. And this morning, I want to do something a little different than I would normally do. I'm not even sure if I should do this, but this is what I am going to do. I'm going to try to do two things in one sermon. Um, I'm not going to preach two sermons to you, probably. I'm going to do two different things in one sermon because it's important for us to think about the concept of rest and how it relates to our workaday lives. This is not an exposition on the fourth commandment. And what the fourth commandment means for today, this is an, an explanation of the principle of Sabbath rest that Jesus uh, sets before us. But then what I also want to do is I want to give some very specific, practical guidelines for thinking about career and work 
because I promised that I would do that, and I have a burden for the many, many young adults in our midst who are perhaps in school trying to figure out what to do with their lives. Maybe they've looked at a career path that they want to pursue, but they're not entirely sure if that's really what they should be doing. And I, I want to at least try to help give them a little bit of uh, biblical counsel uh, and wisdom to help them figure these things out. So, so this is going to feel a bit disjointed in all honesty. We're going to hear a, a short exposition on Sabbath rest and then we're going to hear a, an explanation on principles uh, we can use uh, as we try to determine what, what our calling is, what our career path is, what our, what our jobs should be. So that's what we're going to do. So first of all, we're going to look here at Matthew chapter 12 and uh, consider what it means to rest in relationship to our work. What we have here is an altercation between Jesus and the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law. The, the disciples had been walking through a, a field they were hungry. They started picking heads of grain in order to feed themselves. And the Pharisees uh, witness this and they say to Jesus, hey, what's going on? Your disciples are breaking the law uh, around the Sabbath. They're, they're breaking the fourth commandment. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And they had a whole list of rules around what it meant to work on the Sabbath. They, it's one thing to say you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. It's another thing to know what work you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath. And so uh, the, the Jews had developed over many, many centuries a whole list of things that you were allowed to do on the Sabbath and you weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath. And one, one of the things you weren't allowed to do, clearly, was precisely what the disciples were doing. And Jesus tells an Old Testament story in response. He goes to 1 Samuel 21 and he tells this story about when David and his boys were on the run. They came to the tabernacle and they were hungry. And so they went in there and they ate the, the showbread that was in the, the temple court that was consecrated and was supposed to be eaten by the Levites only. And they did that. And that is technically unlawful. But Jesus says this to imply, and, and when he says this, he's implying that David and his band of brothers were not condemned for doing this act. And he wants the Pharisees and he wants you and me to work out the implications of that. Because you see, the Sabbath command, it's listed in the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. It's the fourth commandment. And the question is, could any of these Ten Commands that are, are found in the, the, the moral law, can any of these things be set aside in a pinch? And apparently it looks like the Sabbath command could be. Nowhere in the Old Testament do you see God saying or Jesus saying, you know, um, it's okay if you break the command not to steal because you were hungry. Or it's okay for you to break the command against adultery because your relationship with your spouse is, is not very good. Or it's okay for you to break the command to have no other gods before me and, and commit idolatry because, you know, you were... Uh, you were dragged off into another nation and you were a slave in, in Philistia or something and therefore that's all you could do was, was worship their gods. Nowhere does God say anything like that. But here, the Sabbath law seems to be, it's allowed to be broken in certain circumstances. Why? Well, the reason is, is because it was provisional. 
The Sabbath law that was provisional and, and it was meant to point to something that one day would fulfill this Sabbath law. It was temporary. And this law pointed to some day when it would be actually made obsolete. And Jesus is standing up and saying that day has come where the Sabbath law itself is being fulfilled by me. That's why he says something greater than the temple is here. That's in verse 6. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that, that the, the Sabbath law was meant to point to something that we desperately needed. And Jesus is standing up and saying, I'm that thing that you desperately need. Or I'm the one who provides that thing that you desperately need. He's saying, I am the actual rest that your heart longs for, that the Sabbath points to. And I'm here. I've come. And what I've come to do is to give you rest, the true rest that your heart so desperately long for. And you say to yourself, okay, what, what, what's the true rest that my heart desperately longs for? Well, if you go back to Genesis 1, Genesis 2, you see that God creates the, uh, the universe. And in Genesis 1, after he does any bit of creating, he says, it's good. It's good. It's good. And then he creates the entire universe. And when he's finished saying that, or doing that, uh, he created, um, sorry, when he's finished creating the entire universe, he says that it's very good, and then the first verses of Genesis 2 says this, the seventh, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So God creates Things are good, things are good, things are good. When he's done the job of creating, on the seventh day he rests, saying that everything is really good. What seventh day Sabbath rest is meant to be, is it's meant to be a time in which you see that your work is completed, and you can sit back and you can enjoy the, the work of your hands and celebrate it. The illustration I would use for that is, let's say you decide to... Uh, landscape your backyard and so you get one of those mini x's or one of those bobcat things and you're tooting around there ripping up stuff here and pulling things out there and then you use that machine to put in rocks over there and soil over there and plants over there and you dig out a space for a deck or for a patio or something and you put all that in and by the way that is all very very hard work that's what i had to do when i was in university uh it's you should tell all landscapers you look up to them because they all have sore backs and arthritis and stuff because it's very difficult work to do. And when you're finally done, you can sit back, grab a glass of lemonade, plunk yourself down in your patio chair, and look at the work of your hands and say, mm, that's good. I enjoy that. You just drink it in. That's the whole point of the work itself. And so what Jesus is pointing to here is that, that the only way you can truly rest is when you feel that the work is finally finished, that it's finally done so that you can take pleasure in the finished product. Okay, so that's the purpose of rest. Now, you move to the New Testament passage of Hebrews chapter 4. And in Hebrews chapter 4, the author to the Hebrews is talking about 
the gospel. And he says this in verses 12 to 13 of Hebrews chapter 4. He says, or sorry, verses 9 and 10. He says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. And the they that he's referring to are the Old Testament Israelites. Now what he's saying in verses 9 and 10 is, is that to be a Christian is to to look at your work the way you look, or the way God looks at his work, to see your life through the lens that God sees your life. Through Jesus Christ, if you come to faith in him and you trust in him and you believe in him as the one who has lived your life that you should have lived and died your death that you deserve to die, then that means the work of pleasing God, the work that is necessary to get God to bless you, to get God to uh, uh, not to pour out his judgment on your sin, that work is completed, it is finished by Jesus on your behalf. And so any work that you do now, you do it as an offering of thanksgiving to him, not worrying about making it perfect, not worrying about whether it will satisfy the needs uh, uh, of your heart in order to feel like you have established yourself as righteous before God, because that's all been done by Jesus for you. It's all been done through Jesus on your behalf. What Hebrews is saying is strive to enter that rest. The rest of ending the monotonous and the treadmill-like or hamster-wheel-like life of trying to make yourself acceptable to God because Jesus has completed that for you. And so our problem, because, because work existed before the fall and work was distorted after the fall, as we saw two weeks ago, our problem is not actually the presence of work in our lives. Our problem is the absence of deep rest. And this is what Jesus offers. That's why he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, when that principle sinks into you, that the work has been done on your behalf by Jesus, you are now free to practice Sabbath, practice Sabbath rest as God intended it. Well, how did God intend us to practice Sabbath rest? Well, first thing is, as a testimony of God's provision, when we rest from our work, when we cease from doing our job. And when I say we rest from our work, I mean those things that we do to, to uh, earn a living. And some of us actually get paid to do these things, to earn a living. Some of the work that we do does not get paid, but it still earns us our living. When we rest from those things, we are testifying that God is ultimately our provider, not me. Think about the first people to hear about the Sabbath. And to hear about the Sabbath command. We don't see the Sabbath being practiced anywhere in the book of Genesis. It shows up in Exodus chapter 20 when God gives the law to the people of Israel who have just been freed from slavery in Egypt. These are people who haven't had a day off in 400 years. And God is saying to them who are very, very poor, 
who were slaves, who had nothing to their name, who were used to scratching out an existence each and every day of their lives. God says to them, the pattern you should follow is take one day out of every seven to rest. And doing that is telling the world, my security is not in my ability to produce. My security is not in my ability to to, produce. Succeed, my security is ultimately in my God because he cares for me. If you work all the time, if you can't stop working and enjoy Sabbath rest, and I'm not even talking about taking one day out of uh, seven. I'm talking about taking a few hours out of each day. I'm talking about you can't take a vacation. You can't go camping for a week or two weeks. You have to be there. You have to work it. And don't tell me, well, when you own your own business, it's a different story. You've always got to be there. Anybody who doesn't practice some rhythm of Sabbath rest is essentially failing to put their trust in God as the one who provides. And you probably are making your work your source of security rather than your God your source of security. Or your source of identity. I can't go on into that one, but I can tell you if, if you don't have a job, if you have a job where you're salaried, let's say, and you know, you don't have to worry about, you know, you know, when you own your own business, it's kill what you eat kind of thing. Or no, sorry, eat what you kill. That's how you say it. When you're in a salaried position, it's not eat what you kill because your, 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 your income is basically guaranteed. Oftentimes, when you're in that situation, it's not so much your security that you're worried about, but it's your identity that you can't give up. You find your identity in your work. That's who you are. When you lose your job, you say, I don't know who I am anymore. I can't say more about that. I'd like to. Maybe I'll do another series on this someday. But the first thing that Sabbath rest operates as is a testimony. The second thing God wants for for us in our rest is that it would be a celebration. In Deuteronomy 5, so there's two places where the Sabbath command is given. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. In Deuteronomy 5, God tells the Israelites that they are to practice Sabbath rest because they were freed from slavery in Egypt. And so they were supposed to take one day out of every week to celebrate the freedom that they have as no, for no longer being slaves. And when Jesus came and, and, and accomplished our salvation, we've been freed from sin. We've been freed from judgment. We've been freed from guilt. We've been freed from death. We are free. And so when we worship together, we gather here to celebrate our freedom in Christ. We don't come here out of obligation because God said, you must go worship me one day a week with a group of people. That's not the purpose of this meeting. The purpose of this meeting is to satisfy our own longings to celebrate the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. And yes, the Bible tells us to worship, but why does the Bible tell us to gather and worship? For that very reason. I expect all of you to leave this place smiling every Sunday because you have been struck, you have been overwhelmed, you have been blown away again by the incredibly good news that you have no obligation to prove yourself to anybody because Jesus has proven himself to the Father on your behalf. It's a celebration. 
Friends, the biggest problem in our lives has been finally and forever defeated. Our biggest problem is not... Our, our biggest pro- I'll tell you what our biggest problem is. I won't tell you what it isn't. What it is, is sin. That's our biggest problem according to the Bible. And that has been finally and forever completed by Jesus Christ. So Sabbath is meant to be practiced as a celebration. And finally, third thing, Sabbath is meant to be practiced as a promise. When we cease our striving and our clamoring, and you know, Mark and I, we don't always talk about the, the, the sermon much before he's working on his liturgy and I'm working on my message, but in his prayer of confession, he used the same words. I couldn't believe it. Striving and our clamoring. When we cease from that in our workaday life and we rest in God's work for us, it is like a prophetic declaration to the world that we are anticipating a new creation when we will finally rest in the full Sabbath, the eternal Sabbath of our God. Friends, you've got to rest. It is a command that we should rest. Jesus did not get rid of the command to rest. Instead, he fulfilled the command to rest. I can't go deeper than that this morning. I apologize. If you want to talk to me about Jesus, how he fulfilled the Sabbath, and if the fourth commandment is still relevant today and all that kind of stuff, you're going to have to talk to me after the service. I won't even have time to take it in a Q&A. I, heard, I, felt, I felt a buzz, so I'm wondering if I'm already getting that question. Um, but the fact is, is that there is a real scarcity of true rest in our culture and in, in our world. Busyness is an idol in our kinds of churches. Reformed Protestant churches and in our culture. For many of us, busyness is almost an ethic. How often do you, do you say to someone, hey, how you doing? And they say, oh, great, busy. But great. I want to make sure you know how busy they are. As though that that's something good. It's a badge and honor of honor for us. We need to kill that idol. And be able to rest. I got to switch gears though. I told you it was going to be jarring. Uh, this is all I can say about rest at this point. Because I want to shift and give advice. <laughs> to young people in particular. Who are trying to d- decide what to do with their lives. And I'm not going to exegete a text for this. I'm just going to give you some principles to think about. The first thing is, you need to understand what a career is meant to be. We have these words, calling, career, job. We use these words a lot. And sometimes these words uh, bleed into one another. And we think one is the same as another. According to the Bible, we are all called to what? To believe the gospel, to follow Jesus Christ, to glorify God in everything that we do. That's all of our call. That's our first call that all of us are are meant to embrace. But second second of all, we are all called to work. Remember our definition of work? It is the gracious, what did did we call it again? Do I remember our definition of work? It is the gracious expression of creative energy in the service of others. The gracious expression of creative energy in the service of others. 
Sometimes people think calling means being called to a specific task, a specific job, or, or a specific profession or type of work. If you look in the Bible, that's actually a pretty rare thing. There are few people in the Bible who are given a specific task, specific calling, a specific type of work to do. God does not typically do that. What he typically does is he gives us talents and he gives us abilities and he gives us interests that will draw us to a career, one career path over another career path. I should never pursue a career that has anything to do with math beyond simple arithmetic. Because I don't have the, the abilities, the skills, the talents, the inherent interest, frankly, in these kinds of things. See, a career is a field of... It's a field in which you get into with the hopes of advancing, with the hopes of doing better, with the hopes of honing your skills and becoming more competent in that field, and hopefully also advancing in the amount of money that you make, the salary that you, you gain. A job is just the thing that you do to make money. And the calling that we all have is to work for the glory of God. Very few of us have a specific calling that equates with our career. Don't confuse your career with your calling. We're all called. That would be too narrow a definition. And it could lead to you putting so much pressure on your career to satisfy you in ways that careers were never meant to satisfy you. It is only Jesus, ultimately, who can satisfy you. But you will find satisfaction in your work if you see it as a calling in the sense that you are doing it for God's glory in the service of others. Fulfilling the great command, loving God and loving neighbor as yourself. Callings are spiritual and, and are not always financially successful. Sometimes we are paid for things that, or sorry, sometimes we are called to things for a period of time. Sometimes we are called to things that never make a dime for us. You are called to help and grace kids. You are called to start a blog and, and write about parenting in the 21st century. You're called to go to seminary but not become a pastor. You spend all these years taking theology classes, but you never actually become a pastor. You have not missed your calling if you are in a career that you don't think no, you have not missed your calling simply because you're not in some kind of spiritual career. Um, how do you know that, um, that your career is not necessarily a calling? Well, try and seek confirmation. In the New Testament, callings are always confirmed. So, so Timothy, for example, was called to a particular task. And and it was confirmed outwardly. You're probably not called to counsel people if nobody's ever asking you for counsel. Or if you don't show much interest in counsel. So understand these differences, calling and career. Secondly, okay, choose your life goals first, then choose your career goals. Do not try to fit your life goals around your career. Many people make this mistake. They choose a career, and then they try to shape their life around that career. That's backwards. Because it limits the number of life goals or the, the types of life goals that you can have, okay? Certain careers take 
certain amount of time. They control where you live. Uh, they control how much time you have to spend in school or how much time you have to spend on the job. If you only want to work 35 hours a week, and there's nothing wrong with saying, I only want to work 35 hours a week, but if you only want to work 35 hours a week, then you're probably not called, or you're, you're probably not, you probably don't fit a career like being a doctor or being a pastor. It's not the job's fault that it takes more time in school or it takes more time on the job to do this thing. And maybe you will be a person who can do things a little bit differently, but, but you need to go into your job, uh, your career search, uh, with realistic, and op- uh, realistic ideas and open minds. Thirdly, choose what is realistic in the marketplace. Yes, it is good to follow your passions and do what you love to do, of course. You should always try to do something that you're very, very interested in. But, but you need to be realistic. If, if work is about serving others, look in our world at what needs to be done. What, ne- what needs are out there in our world and how can your abilities, how can your talents, how can your skills align with the needs that are out there? The Bible says being practical is good, not bad. If you like working with your hands and you like building stuff, consider a job in construction or carpentry. And don't discount it simply because you say, well, you know, I, I come from a family of people who all go to university and get white-collar jobs and sit at desks. If you're, I have, none of my kids want to sit at a desk. I spend all my time sort of at a desk. None of my kids want to do that. And that's probably wise for them. Now, let's say you're passionate about phrenology. Do you know what phrenology is? Right? It's the, the science of based on head size. I can determine intellect and stuff like that. It's been completely discounted. Just because you have an interest in phrenology doesn't mean that there's a job out there in phrenology. Because it's a completely debunked pseudoscience. My point is, choose something that is realistic in the marketplace. Just because you want to do something, the world is not obligated to pay you for wanting to do that thing. The world has real needs. Figure out how you can satisfy them. Fourth thing, do not underestimate the importance of making money. What? A minister just said that? Yes, I just said that. Look, the Bible says that the love of money is the root of many kinds of evils. That's 1 Timothy 6. It does not say money is the root of evil. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And our hearts are are particularly susceptible to the temptations of money. So don't be a fool and just think, oh, making lots of money will never be an idol to me. Remember that 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 is one of the the key idols that seems to exist. And one of the reasons it is a key idol that seems to exist is because of the other side. Money is a very powerful tool to advance the cause of the kingdom of God. You make money 
Not for yourself, but for the sake of the kingdom. And I'm not simply talking about donating to the church. I'm talking about leveraging your wealth for the advancement of the kingdom in all kinds of ways. Some of you have enough money to build an apartment on your house and rent it out to some poor single student or some young couple just starting out or some uh, single parent who's in need and can't find proper housing in this ridiculous market, but you give them a way lower rate because you are capable, because you have wealth to leverage. This is advancing the kingdom of God. I can't give you a hundred examples of this. That's just one. You're not extra spiritual if you never think about money at all. Money is necessary for living. It just is. And in the Bible, where we accumulate our wealth for the sake of the common good, God provides for us through our work, through our career, in order that we can provide for others. And so it is okay to consider the salary uh, that you want to receive if you're considering it for good reasons. Now, studies show... Studies show that wealth does not make people happier, okay? But generosity does. The more wealth you have, the more generous you can be. And so don't be afraid to want to make money. That's not a sinful thing in and of itself. Fifth, I only got two more, then we're done. Develop hard skills early in life and soft skills later in life. What do I mean by that? Hard skills are the measurable specific skills that you receive in schooling and in training. An engineer needs to be a good communicator, it's true, but what they really need to learn for first is, is the right math that keeps the bridge from crumbling. And this is what degrees are for, this is what, what diplomas are for, measurable skills that need to be developed. Soft skills that are important in the marketplace, they are harder to measure. Things like communication or leadership ability or strategizing, etc. Those are hard to predict. And having a good set of hard skills, young people, that will make it easier for you to have job security over time. Um, it's harder to get a job if all you have to offer are soft skills. But soft skills are really important for advancing in your career, developing those in your career. You know, the, the disciples were all fishermen, except the Apostle Paul. He was a tent maker. Jesus was a carpenter. They all spent their youth learning these trades and learning them very well before they were released into ministry. And there are several occasions in the New Testament where, where the disciples fell back on these hard skills uh, in certain situations. And then the last thing. Trust God in choosing your career, but be open to changing that career over time. Uh, you got to pick something, guys. <laughs> like, some people are created to be perpetual students, um, just accumulating degree after degree, <laughs> but not many of us. Most of us have to pick something and start doing it, even if we're not sure if that's the thing that we're going to be doing forever. Trust God's sovereignty. Don't think that you have missed God's will for your life if you chose the so-called wrong career. Unless your job is illegal or unethical, it is impossible for you to be outside of God's sovereign will for you. God has a will of command. This is how I want you to live. You want to know what that is? Read your Bible. It's right there. 
Read the Ten Commandments. This is how I want you to live. If you want to know what God's will for you and your career is, go get a career. If you got it, that's His will. That's part of His sovereign will, and that's how it works. It is common in our culture for more and more people to have multiple jobs and maybe even change careers. That's not a problem. That's okay. But you got to pick something sometime and start working for God's glory in his kingdom. I hope that helps you youngsters and maybe some older folks too. I had a friend who switched careers at age 37. She went back to university at age 37 to become a midwife. So it can be done. But you got to do something now. All right, let's pray. Father, work is such a big part of our lives. Um, help us to think thoughtfully about life and how to live life and how to, to do our work well in a way that pleases you. We pray for our, our young people who are exploring career options and opportunities. It's something new in our culture. Most people didn't have this kind of freedom uh, over the course of history, but our young people do. And that privilege, uh, it brings complications. And so we pray that you will guide them into careers that will be fulfilling, that will be satisfying to them, that they will find meaningful, but most of all, that will, will enable them to serve others and show the love of Jesus to others through what they do. We pray that for all of us, that our work would, would honor you and glorify you, and that we would do it to the best of our ability so that the world may know that, uh, that you are God, even through our faithful work. Do this, we pray in your son's precious name. Amen.